welcome back to Anime on the Sea to Sky. Um, it seems like we're already halfway through the winter 2022 anime season, but at least already on the West Coast, spring seems to be already coming to fruition and seeing a lot of lilies, a lot of roses, and a lot of foliage essentially finally making their way and popping up out of the ground, even though the spring anime season is still uh, quite a ways away and there's still a couple of things that we need to take care of and still a couple of things that we need to finish and I'm still incredibly curious to see how exactly the season is going to end for a lot of major things, including an ending that may or may not be controversial in terms of um, Attack on Titan, because as the weeks go by, and as this point, we only have five episodes left to go, and some people say there's enough time to finally complete the story and finish where the manga left off, and some are saying that Due to the amount of time and the amount of content that they still have to go through, it's still a possibility that a movie might be in sight, thanks to the major successes of both Jujutsu Kaisen and, most notably, Demon Slayer. But, I mean, it's definitely something that's going to be curious to see, because MAPPA is definitely a production and money-wise-centered studio, considering how their executive producer is the one that is the current CEO slash president. So I'm really curious to see how exactly they're going to take that info, and if they had decided that within the breaks between parts one and two of the final season. So I'm really curious to see how that's going to end up, because that's basically the major question that's going to be popping up in everybody's minds as to because of how big this series actually is. But besides that, at least over the break, I was able to go through and uh, catch up on the newest Nintendo Direct to kind of see what everything's going through. I'm finally, after ages and ages of putting it off, after grabbing the game in November of last year, I'm finally giving uh, The World Ends With You Neo a go, and it's just not grabbing me as much as the original one did. I'm now into the second week, and it's just Wait, what do you what do you mean I still don't care about the main trio? What do you mean the only reason why this game is what, what because I understand that it's a sequel, but the fact that you're going through a sequel and you spent an entire week building up a new trio of cast members as well as the other antagonists and deuteragonists of the world that are essentially inhabiting this underground version of Shibuya and I still don't care about the main ones and the only ones that I'm curious about is to how exactly the old players of the old game are going to be tying into this and it's just i don't know it's kind of failing on that front but it's still got two weeks i'm expecting because i don't know how long they're going to drag this one out i don't know if they're going to do three weeks like the first game did or if they're going to kind of switch it up a bit and extend the second week or they might just be incredibly fucking insane and they go for four weeks which i really hope isn't the case because it took me over 15 hours just to get through week one so kind of curious to see how that's gonna go and i'm hoping it gets better at this point once we actually get a little bit of context as to how every other character inside of the show has a uh, part to play and how exactly they got there in the first place because we haven't really been given any sort of info on anybody's like reasons or as to why they would want to get out otherwise just to watch anime and play the new uh, chapter of a game that they've been waiting to release for several months but anyways at least there were a couple of things that i was curious about although i do feel like i was kind of disappointed considering the first thing that showed inside of the nintendo it's like hey we're going to be making another fire emblem game based on Dynasty of Three Houses, and it's just, oh, it's another Dynasty Warriors game that I'm never going to play, because I never, I never did uh, play the, uh, play, I'm trying to remember the name of the other one, because I, I wasn't Fire Emblem Dynasty Wars or something derivative like that, but it's the same genre, it's the same t st uh, style of game, 
and I never did pick it up, even though they did finally go through seeing how popular Fates and Awakening was, and they did bring back some old characters from not only the GameCube era, but the Game Boy Advance one as well. So, yeah, no, I'm just going to have to wait and see and uh, kind of figure that out. That's still going to make some money, but I'm really more curious to see if they're going to be going back and either remaking or porting one of the old uh, lesser-known, like, SNES uh, titles for the original Fire Emblem games, or are they going to be focusing more on a new project? We're just going to have to wait and see, considering that now all eyes are on them, considering I'm pretty sure the Fire Emblem Three Houses is in the top 10 best-selling Switch games inside of their catalog, so with that success and with that notoriety, I'm still curious to see what they're going to do, but at least for the other games that Nintendo decided to unveil inside of their Direct, the ones that I'm actually looking forward to, I mean, speaking of Game Boy Advance games, they're going to be bringing back Advance Wars 1 Plus 2 Reboot Camp, considering that the first Advance Wars, the first and second one, actually, I never completed either of them, but I did give both of them a decent shot and played a couple of chapters and advanced quite a bit into the story, but it's honestly going to be something that I'm probably not going to give too much priority as it, but it does seem like if it would be a decent game to like bring on a plane or something for me to actually get back into it to just kind of see if I can actually complete it in the long run. But I don't know, only time will tell. At least that one's going to be coming out on April 8th, so I'm going to be giving that a watch. Also, the new Mario Strikers game, I am really excited to see this considering that I was an incredibly huge fan of both the GameCube version and the Wii versions that ended up coming out. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, Mario Strikers Charged, which was the Wii version, came out in 2007. It's been 14 years. <laughs> 15 years. I'm bad at math. Um, since we've actually seen anything related to this title come out in just all this time. And now they're finally going to go through and bring back a new one under the title Mario Strikers Battle League. And that has a release date coming out on June 10th. And I'm kind of curious to see how that goes, but in terms of, uh, like, Reddit discourse and how the reactions on that site aggregated, people were the most excited, as this was the biggest surprise and the most exciting surprise for them of the day. So I'm kind of happy to see everybody, like, come back and be really excited about what else this game franchise is going to have to offer. And then one that I'm definitely going to be playing probably a lot with my younger cousin, and whenever the family comes over, uh, I mean, Nintendo Switch Sports... I played the hell out of not only Wii Sports, but also Wii Sports Resort. And considering that this is not only going to be bringing back and introducing, like, all the classic game modes that we played a lot of this time, but they're also going to be bringing in badminton and volleyball, which is going to be uh, some new additions into the fray. Definitely a huge guy when it comes to badminton, so I'm really curious to see how that goes. And I can definitely see myself going through every single game inside of whatever this um, sports game has to offer. So, yeah. Really curious to see how that's going to turn out. And then, I guess, there's not really much news around it, but we finally got, like, some promotional material, considering that Yuri on Ice's fifth-year anniversary finally ended up going through and released some promotional material and a lot of other it. We've known since, like, 2018 or so that MAPPA has had a film, um, Yuri on Ice Adolescence, has been literally going on there for ages and ages, and... It's been, like, four years since we've heard anything related to, like, checking back in on the production. Because, yeah, what was it? It was, wow, it was originally scheduled for 2019, but then it was delayed in order to substantially scale up the content more than originally planned. And then, of course, the next year the pandemic happened, so it's just kind of like, okay, you got more time now. <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous to kind of see how that, like, how the majority is that has been changing over the past couple of years, but I'm really 
excited to see how that's going to go. If anything, I'm going to say, because MAPA's really interested in getting these things out, I'm going to guess it's going to come out sometime in 2023, but only time will tell. But then in terms of other movies, specifically the topics that I actually want to get to today, it's just that... Two weeks ago, this was originally going to be the episode that I had planned to actually talk about the Oscars and what got nominated and what ended up not getting through, but there were a lot of films that I did end up, like, not catching up on up until the day of, and so I just had to figure out, okay, so am I going to put something out later in the week, or am I just going to catch up on all these movies that I haven't seen and actually get, like, another episode out, which was last week's slipshod, you know... Uh, Valentine's Day thing. So, I don't know. That didn't necessarily didn't feel too good, but it was also but it also gave me the opportunity to spread some time out and actually go through and figure out what shows were actually going to be nominated and what ones would have actually been left by the wayside and not going through. So, to put it bluntly, not a single anime film was um nominated for best picture, and I don't think it has been since like 2020 or 19. Like it's been it's definitely been a while. So yeah, it hasn't been since 2019 since we've actually gotten like an anime film nomination. And I think that was, I think it was Mirai, I I believe. But yeah, no, it's it's definitely been a while. And it's not really something that I've like, I've been moving myself further and further away from as time goes by, because literally it's like Oscar ratings have been in decline for like nearly the past decade. And so just no less and less people are giving a shit about it for good reason. And it's like, as an anime fan, the first like pop-up that came to me where it's just kind of like, look at all these great films that came out in 2018 and literally they didn't give a shit, especially back in 2016 when The Boss Baby ended up getting a nomination over Your Name as it was like the biggest Japanese film ever to come out at the time. So that was just kind of something that really like spurred us like, why in the ever-loving fuck would this get nominated and why would they not even look outside into the more international waters to find other stuff to go through? And it's just kind of like, oh yeah, well, the Oscars is mo- mainly just like something that's meant to advertise the majority of their films in some of the smaller categories. And it's literally just a buy-in spot where it's like, yo, we can't guarantee you the award. In fact, the majority of the time, the award's already guaranteed to go to somebody else. But at least at this point in time, we can give you like a worldwide advertising spot. And it's like, yeah, of course they're going to, like people are just going to be paying up oodles and oodles of money in order for that to go. But now, that they don't really give a shit considering the amount of viewers has been in a steady decline over the past several years fewer and fewer people are actually giving it a watch and giving it less and less um importance and prestige as it used to be which is honestly better for this kind of climate but in terms of it's this is definitely going to be an episode where i'm going to be going over a plethora of films that i've been able to go through some i was able to watch like back in january and well january and then of course all of last year considering this is mostly out of world for 2021 and it takes me a while to remember that but at least in this point in time I'll, I'll be able to go through the ones that didn't get nominated and for the ones that i was actually able to go through and finally see because at least the ones that did get nominated while none of them were anime have all been given good recommendations from everybody else who has gone and given this show a watch so I was legitimately curious to see how that would go, but in terms of the ones I'll I'll get right off across the board, the ones that I didn't watch that got, um, like, that got, uh, were eligible to be submitted for a nomination but didn't, um, there was an American film, uh, called The Spine of Night, uh, never got into that considering I wasn't able to find anything online for the same deal as well as My Sunny Mod, which is a Czech film that also didn't necessarily, that was eligible for nomination, but didn't end up going through. Same deal, can watch that. And then it's the exact same deal for these three uh, anime films that went through. So Laws of the Universe, 
couldn't find anything. Literally, like, not a single torrent, not anything in the the realm of being able to actually have me the opportunity to actually watch it. It just never wasn't there. Popel of Chimney Town, I was able to find a torrent, but there was not a single subtitle file that I was able to download and, like, attribute that into the experience, and I wasn't able to at least get any sort of sub or dub related to this film. So... All I got was the video file and blip and like just kind of skimming through it. It has a really unique storybook aesthetic, but with kind of like a father and son sort of dynamic between a boy and this robot. And there wasn't really much that I saw that seemed like it was worthy of that nomination. But yeah, I don't know. At least it doesn't seem like a priority to me in the coming years. And now this one was interesting because I would have probably, I did have an opportunity to watch this. But I thought, considering how long it's been out, it would have, like, found its way onto the internet in some form of torrent one way or another, and that is Fortune Favors Lady Nikuko. And the only way that I would have been able to watch this up in Canada is that the Ottawa International Film Festival had a couple of days where if you paid the subscription to go and browse and view the catalogs of the films that were nominated and were actually being displayed inside of that festival, then Fortune Favors Lady Nikuko was, like, the only major one that I knew and the only major one that, like, I felt that I would have wanted to watch if I wanted to pay up, but it just didn't seem like anything else. And I know I'm just being a stickler. I, if I wanted to be adventurous, I easily could have watched like another film or two just to actually garner the price tag but at that point in time it wasn't necessarily a priority because i don't know because of how the torrenting and how that lifestyle has essentially been guiding me it's just i felt like at some point in time it would have been made itself available some months down the line but to this day it still isn't there so the one week that i had the opportunity to to watch it i didn't end up uh, like going through and giving it a chance so at some point in time this year once it goes through i think that's going to be the one of all the ones that i missed that i'm probably going to give a first watch but i don't know only time will tell so now for the films that i did watch and there are a number of them that deserved i think yeah yeah there are a couple that deserved it and a couple that didn't and the one I can guarantee that I would have been a little annoyed by if this one ended up getting a nomination based on its not only its quality, but because G-Kids was able to, like, like they are a really, like, full and licensed distribution company, and they've already been able to get uh, Mirai, like, nominated for Best Animated Feature a couple years ago, even though I didn't necessarily think it was the strongest work, but Bell is just another step down. And it's kind of unfortunate because this is probably the last time I am going to just trust the name of Mamoru Hosoda because it's just, it did not work in any way, shape, or film. This film did not work to get me emotionally invested, to get me curious about the world, to get me invested in the conflict. Just nothing about it just just came out and spoke to me at all considering that like at least the um the music was great like at least the songs were of a good quality it's just that all the context and the relations and the events surrounding those songs just didn't hit at all in any semblance of the word i mean they kind of give some characters more of a spotlight than others when they don't even matter. I really feel bad for her dad, considering that just the basis of this film is that, uh, like, our main character, like, she's not Belle, but she's, like, Suzu. Oh, right, Suzu, because it's Suzu, uh, Japanese for Belle, yada, yada, yada. 
she basically, so she loses her mom at a young age. She spirals into depression and she used to sing and compose music with her mom but now that she's gone she just can't do it considering that it just brings up uh, like a ptsd response whenever she goes through and the only way that she's able to go and sing is to like go into this oz virtual reality social network sort of um world and she's able to like let go of her anxieties and she's actually able to sing in there and then but of course in that semblance, she gets spotted, and then out of nowhere, nobody knows who her character is because there is a lot of anonymity, and she immediately starts getting, like, millions upon millions of followers, and it's like, she's a trendy meme sensation overnight, and it's like, I had no... It, I get it, you're trying to work off the internet, but that's not really how that sort of thing works, especially when anonymity is sort of a thing, because, I mean, I could definitely... I would have viewed this film in a different lens if... Uh, v Shoujo and Hololive and just, God, I'm trying to remember the name. Like, VTubers. If VTubers didn't exist, this would have given me a different perspective if it was something new. But now knowing, like, what VTubers have done over the past two years and, like, how they're able to accrue an audience over, like, a steady period of time and how they're able to, like, use their personalities to kind of, like, create unique experiences, especially how they were able to give, like, some kind of like, new way to um, experience Twitch and live streaming for that inside of the pandemic, that's entirely different. But just this film in particular n didn't get any of its bearings right. It it focused on, it jumped focus from one thing to another to another so, so often that you could never, like, sit down and process and legitimately, like, feel and get invested in any of these characters because they would be jumping into, like, so many different points and mysteries. And it's like, sure, they threw a red herring just to kind of, like, make us feel like we knew who the Beast was and where this was going. But it's, the like, the actual response is just so far out of left field and unbelievable that it's just so ridiculously going through. The confession scene was probably the most fun I had inside of that film because it was incredibly awkward and charming and seeing like even though these two characters barely got any screen time the way that they were able to bounce off each other specifically gave me so much joy that I completely forgot about everything re like related to the movie that was going on at the time and then they just dragged us kicking and screaming back to the virtual reality world it's like no I was enjoying I was enjoying the real world you know engagement and shenanigans but nope we have to go and continue on with the plot it's like Okay, so no, if it's, I understand that it, it's an incredibly harsh con comment, but I still think that Bell was probably the worst animated film. Technically, because I saw it this year, since there wasn't any, uh, like opportunities up in Canada to see it last year, but if this is still attributed to a 2021 film when it got released, I th still think it is the worst film that I watched last year. Easily. So, Jose and the Tigerfish. Or Jose the Tiger and the Fish. I, I keep thinking Tigerfish, but yada, yada, yada. I thought this was a good romance movie. I thought it was good. It was nothing spectacular. Honestly, the first half of it was like an eight, eight and a half out of ten, considering that I was invested in how the relationship between these two characters were building, um, how their actual passions and interests and goals were not necessarily aligned, but they were both in full support of one another, and one was able to give the perspective and show them a world that they hadn't seen in ages based on uh like the main girl's handicap to not only herself but to view the world on her own and she wasn't able to do that herself and i really enjoyed it and then by the time i was getting to the peak of this movie 
Um, I reached the 45 minute mark and I scrolled down and there was still another 45 minutes to go after like we reached the peak of like, oh my God, they're falling in love. They're supportive of each other's goals and lives. They're actually making long-term plans. And it's like, oh no, there's going to be some sort of K-drama, J-drama, like conflict or event that's going to happen in the middle and then drive them apart. And then they're going to have to like find their way like back into into their arms just because they there has to be some sort of conflict like why can't we just have a romance film where it's just hey just you don't even have to make it 90 minutes like just make it an hour of two people like meeting and getting and falling in love and actually like finding happiness inside of their situation with each other but no we have to have some sort of melodramatic conflict that or event that just uh, just splits them apart and it's like oh no and so it sort of picks up the pieces by the end but just Everything that happens after the midway point just starts to drop off because even though I cared about the characters, the fact that this was so contrived and out of left field was just kind of like, oh man, we're, we're going to have to focus on this for the next half hour, aren't we? It's like, oh no. But I mean, like as a romance film, I would still give it a recommendation, but it's still kind of like, yeah, I don't know. It's um, it just never really fit for me. So one that I recently figured out, or at least thanks to the articles on ANN, is that um, there was a French film, and considering with, <laughs> if it's, if Arcane gave me anything, if not the best, you know, animated piece of media last year, it's like, hey, guess what? You should start paying attention to the French animation scene, because there is quite a bit of anime inspiration going from there, and a lot of their works, and they are incredibly talented at what they do. So I understand that it's taken me this long to like get into like the French side of things, but I'm legitimately interested like now that that's kind of opened my eyes and given me both a new perspective and an avenue of stuff for me to watch. So the summit of the gods, um, which is based off of a manga series by Jiro Taniguchi that is produced by a French animation studio. And so this essentially just follows a young Japanese reporter who encounters a mysterious mountain climber uh, named Habu. And so he thinks the camera that is in Habu's possession might be Mallory's camera, who were potentially the first people to ever reach the summit of Mount Everest. And so he needs to figure out where this man was, who he was, what essentially like drove him to guide that, and how exactly he was able to find Mallory's camera. Because this man was somebody who climbed Mount Everest. And so the film itself goes through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s of basically trying to see these two not necessarily find each other considering that we go, we jump back and forth between Habu and his past and what drove him to be a mountain climber and what essentially happened to him to drive him all the way to the Philippines and to like stay at the base of Mount Everest in some kind of confinement and what and what motivates Habu, what essentially like drives him to go through and what drives mountain climbers themselves to climb. Like back in those days where you didn't you didn't use oxygen, you had like basically just twine not twine, but rope and climbers and shoes, and you had to climb these ridiculous summits with only your wit and your strength and your will and your determination. And so it was I was really curious to see how that goes and give us the perspective of why people climb and why finding those summits themselves was like something in the first place. And why would they continue to do it even though there is little to be had, and the danger is so immense that so very casually people lose their lives to this kind of, like, hobby, sure, but 
It's just something that drives them consistently to find new heights and to find something to keep themselves going. I mean, the only thing like related to this that I've ever seen would have been free solo and to kind of see like what kind of people, because at least some of the gods you have equipment, free solo is just, you've got nothing but yourself. Literally just like no equipment, no nothing on the vast majority of the times that you end up going and climbing faces. And so the Summit of the Gods, I would say if you're interested in like finding something, because the animation is good, the story does lull at times because it does focus on like trying to get you invested on like seeing these two meet and why the camera is so important because the young Japanese reporter, Makoto, he is... So invested on trying to figure figure this out because this could change this could theoretically change the face of like the climbing of Mount Everest's history as a whole because this would be a new two uh, like a, like a new duo that would have been technically the first to climb the mountain and to him that's incredibly like game changing but I would imagine to like especially to myself it wasn't necessarily the crux or the most entertaining part about the film it was definitely the characters as to why they do this, why they continue to drive higher and higher, and why they just don't stop, even though it's something that could very lead to a very premature death, as could potentially happen many times inside of this film. So it definitely depends on what exactly you're looking for, but if you're looking for something that has good animation and a story that could be like switching on a base-by-base set, I would definitely like give the Summit of the Gods a recommendation. And kind of like moving forward to see what the French animation scene has left to offer going forward. And so I would say the one that I'm the most curious about, like leading into it as to why this animated film in general didn't get a nomination was Pompo the Cinephile. Because it's like, pardon my language, it sucks off the American like, Hollywood film industry so damn hard in comparison to every other film, and you know that if there's anything that the Academy loves, it they love getting all this positive reception and compliments, and we're the ones that drive the dreams that move the industry forward, and it's like, they are literally, like, cupping the balls and stroking the shaft of, like, all these executives, and the fact that they didn't get a nomination was, like, oh, wow, like, it's still a good movie. Like, I still really enjoyed Pompo the Cinephile, considering that it's still, like, very heavily, like, dream-oriented, where it's like, hey, we're going to be getting a girl who's never acted before and a dude who's never directed for, and they're going to be given the, like, tools to, like, direct a triple-A mainstream film. And it's like, it's it all goes perfectly. Like, it nearly all goes perfectly because of, like, the strengths of these, like, sets of... Uh, like oddballs and outcasts that are still able to go through because it's mainly those two but then everybody else is competent like you've got some of the best actors you've got a lot of the good production assistants you've got everything going through like the major thing like the only major tool that i saw that this kid had was that he was really good in the editing bay like that's and like seeing the different perspectives on what producers think are important who they should actually go into the editing bay and who should like take charge of the film and whose vision it should be like it's i was really curious to see how that goes honestly i'm probably going to show this to a buddy of mine even uh who is he is a small-time director and he's like writing his own stuff and i'm really curious to see what his perspective on this sort of film would be but it's like it was glorifying hollywood to the nth degree so much so that there's no way that the Academy would not let this, like, positive press just go unnominated. But surprisingly, it didn't. 
I would still say it's a recommendation. Like, is it a good film on its own if you don't really care too much about the Hollywood process and the rest of it? I don't know. I Like, at least the production side of things wasn't the most prominent. It was the way that they had to set up all of these films and kind of, like, setting up how the production side and, like, time and money and effort and manpower and how that all gets managed and nominated. If that's an interest to you, like, I would definitely give it a wholehearted recommendation because, like, all of these characters that are incredibly quirky in their own rights, they're all, like, driving to be, like, the main force of their own story like regardless of their circumstances and i really was enjoying it like i think it does like follow the same problems as like one of the only problems for for this film was kind of like the same thing with jose uh jose 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 i'm just gonna say jose and the tiger fish for for now on so <laughs> tiger fish is that it's the same deal where this time for the vast majority of the film it was uh like set in stone and I really like the pacing and I like the editing. I like the transition. I liked how everybody was moving forward and that it was still going through, but then exactly the same, there's still another half hour of the movie and the conflict didn't really get me going. And it's like, this would have been the most glorifying way to just be like, Hey, productions and banks and the Academy. It's like, we know that under these same circumstances you would do and help everybody follow their dreams and not be completely focused on the fucking money because we know you're focused on the fucking money. And I don't necessarily know why that you wouldn't at least help these people with all the fucking money that you get. But I know that you would do this out of the bottom of your generous hearts. And it's just kind of like, wow, this didn't get nominated. But yeah, no, I would say out of all of those four, like I would, I'd say I liked Pompo the Cinephile the best, probably because it is still like very anime in its portrayal and its direction, even though it's sit in this fictional world of Hollywood, like not like Nollywood, I'm trying to remember, I think is what they called it, but it's, it's basically just a, like a dramatized version of Hollywood. The one that I still am very, 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 very surprised that's still didn't end up getting a nomination, uh, was, you know, Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0. Like, how? Not last year? Not this year? Which was the last time it would have been able to be eligible? It's just kind of like, Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0 is going to go through and, like, not get a single nomination. Like, not like not even nod. Like, not even... It, it's like, I, I just don't even know. Like, Pompo is probably my favorite of those four, but it's like, if you're talking about the best animated film of last year, like... It's Evangelion, no question. It's like the way that it's still after everything that went through, after going through the rebuilds and the casual backlash of the original television series final two episodes and the backlash of the end of Evangelion and then how the amount of stories and different products and timelines and everything that is basically involved inside of the evolution of this show over the past 25 years. And then Anna was still able to give a satisfying enough conclusion and stick the landing to that degree is nothing short of amazing. And the fact that he was able to, like, go through, like, even at the end of his production, that COVID would have struck and it was still, like, going through production turmoil even after all this time through events that were completely beyond his control was kind of fitting. But still, how they were able to finally complete this era of Anno's Evangelion, because I'm not going to be surprised if Evangelion comes back at some point, because uh, like, it's just too successful of a property to just let die and stay low. But this was 
Hideaki Anno's final Evangelion. It was such a way to send it off that I just, I'm legitimately surprised that it was not even sent in for a nomination or that, like, they even, like, gave it the chance. So, yeah, I don't know. That was still, that was still the best thing I watched last year, like, by far. But uh, now we end up getting to the actual nominations of the five films. So there was only one film that I ended up, like, just dreading going through the rest of it. And surprisingly enough, the vast majority, like, four of these five films, I wouldn't be surprised if any of them won at the end of the day. Well, maybe Luca, but that's that's kind of like, it's still a middle child that still did its job well enough in the time that it was given to still be, like, an enjoyable watch. But if there is only one film inside of this category that officially got nominated for the Best Animated Feature that would win and I would be legitimately upset would be Raya the Last Dragon. Because it was a fucking mess of a movie. And a mess tonally, a mess structurally, a mess with characters, a mess with plot, like a mess with how quickly paced it was at some points and how slow it decided to go at others. Like just everything was completely and utterly, like baffly mismembered and mismanaged like it it looks good as most disney uh, appropriate films do like it still has a great style and it looks like a great film it's too bad that literally everything else about it when it comes to characters when it comes to story when it comes to world building is absolutely bull it's just absolutely piss poor when it comes to any kind of structure and any kind of semblance because the only closest thing that this resembles would have definitely been Avatar considering that with the different nations that got split up along the river and how the conflict is set up and how like the major themes are about trust except like the way they portray trust is in the most asinine and bullshit way possible where it's like you know this one chick that betrayed your trust after you decided to put wholehearted after you decided to wholeheartedly trust her in the beginning of the film even though you'd only known her for about a couple of hours and then she betrays you and you're like, oh no. But the fact that she betrays her, like the near apocalypse, like the near end of the world, like is caused by it. And she, and over the course of the time skip, she is still shows no remorse and no problems with actually like trying to, uh, to go through and actually figure out what essentially is going to be going through. Uh, like, at least for these five films, I'm going to be keeping spoilers to a minimum, but for the one that I am not going to recommend to any facet of any demographic or to any kind of people, Raya is definitely the one that I can't, like, give any positive things to say about. Like, legitimately none. And it was like, I loved watching Aquafina in uh, Shang Tsung and the Ten Rings. Or Shang Tsung, sorry. Shang-Chi. <laughs> uh, Shang Tsung, your soul is mine. Um, Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings. But... In here, it's just that the tone... Like, I understand the demographic is for kids. Like, I understand they have to make it somewhat modern to appeal to the kids that are coming in to watch it. But the fact that, like, you are in this, like, Chinese-era fantasy world with dragons and myths and monsters and magic, and, like, Aquafina comes and starts throwing this literal modern 21st century lingo around, like, for the rest of it, it's like, okay, that's going to take everybody out of the picture like even the kids that are going to be watching it where it's like okay great so we're trying to figure out like how to stop the apocalypse and she like starts dropping like a backdrop and trust and magic and filter and like filters really fucking filters in like your chinese dystopian fantasy 
I don't know, man. It was just something that was so asinine, and I didn't care about a single... Like, the only time I got a legitimate, like, oh, man, I feel bad, is that, like, when they go and try and take one of the pieces of the, like, MacGuffin orb from this town, and there's only one man guarding it, and it's because he's the only last remaining survivor of his clan, and the camera slowly pans to just an empty crib, and you're like, oh, my God, it's, like... I feel sorry for this man. Like, he is a father that has lost everything. His tribe, his community, his lands, even his own children. And they didn't even have to say a word. Like, it was a really well-set-up moment that they didn't even need to focus too hard on because, like, you get one look at it and you understand completely. Especially with how, like, he, like, relates to all the kids that are a part of this, uh, like, ragtag team of, uh, like, adventurers that are trying to go and save the world. And it's like, yeah, no, he is the father figure and he does a really good job. Um, but then everything else is just kind of like, I really do not care. I just could not care. <laughs> Especially how the climax of the film, everybody is like, you know what? This one random chick from Fang who we've, who has repeatedly just betrayed me over and over and over again and has nobody but her own self-interest in hand. We're going to trust the entirety of the world in her hands. And this is going to be like the best, like momentous, like this is where the themes of trust finally coalesce and like do it. It's like, dude, her fucking choices are either die or potentially try and save the world to save her own skin. It's like, why would she not make that choice? I don't know. It was... I'm trying to figure out what was worse, Belle or Raya the Last Dragon. I, I think Raya, because I didn't care about any of the characters in the same way. Like, I didn't really care too much about Belle, but at least Belle had the pieces. I don't think Raya had, like, any pieces to spare because of, like, how poorly it was written and how the world was set up. So, like, literally nothing. Like, I, I just couldn't... I could Like, I could not give you a good reason to watch Raya the Last Dragon in any semblance of the word. So... Yeah, no, it's not much you can do there. So now to the films that are actually good, because, like, every single one of these films are at least a seven in my mind. Like, they were all a positive experience that I would still, like, if somebody wanted to rewatch it, it's like, sure, let's go and actually uh, give this one a chance. Like, Luca is probably, like, when I say the second weakest of the group, it's definitely not a detriment to its quality. Like, it still looks amazing, it's paced well, like, all the characters are likable to kind of, like, see this ragtag team of underdogs trying to go through. Like, maybe the dad is possibly just the best character out of all of them. Like, all the parents inside of the show, like, get a lot of good opportunities to, like, shine in their own way. And it's just the way that they're able to, like, interact and, like, manage themselves inside of this world, like, right off the coast of Italy. It's definitely, I don't know, it was really good. And it really, really, really got me interested in getting, like... Like, was it a Verde? I think it was a Verde pasta. And it's like, man, it looks so good. It looks good. It sounds good. Like, like all the home-esque, uh, like, atmospheres and vibes that we got when uh, Luca and Roberto actually go in and get Barat into the house of these, uh, of these two, like, Whirly. Like, the daughter's great. The dad's great. Like, e like everything around them is, like, well set up. Like, the quote-unquote villain of this is great considering that he's just an asshole and they don't try to even give us a single inkling of, like, remorse or, like, give him, like, a sad backstory to make us realize why he's why he turned out this way. No, he's just an asshole. And he, like, and he becomes an even bigger and bigger asshole, like, as the film goes on. So it's just kind of, like, still comical to, like, watch him, like, be a bumbling, like, 
threatening like late teens villain and it's like yeah you know what you try man you, you keep trying it, it's still fun to have you on screen but yeah no at the end of the day i really enjoyed luca and i would still give it a good recommendation and now this one's definitely interesting considering that if any of these three ended up winning the oscar for best animated feature i would completely understand and agree with you because like all of these three films are great in their own respective ways and like add so much in what they were trying to accomplish, whether it's through storytelling or through, like, visual... or using the visual medium, like, as a way to tell these specific stories. Like, all three of them, like, did an exceptional job for the for the time that they were given, and I could definitely see any of these guys, like, walking away with the trophy. But I think the one that I'll start out with will probably be Encanto. And Encanto is just a really good family story, especially, like, how stress and, uh, like, toxic relationships between uh, motivation, expectations, and gifts, like, lead into how it can twist a family dynamic rather than help it in the long run. And you totally understand why the house is the way it is. Although, if we're talking about the house, I absolutely adore that the house in of itself is a character. Like, I'm trying to remember, like, there was another, besides Monster House... Uh, like, there was another film where the house itself, like, was its own character, and it really did a good job. Like, it doesn't even have to say anything, but the way the house responds to all of the shit that's happening around it is just kind of like, oh, you know, that just, it adds, like, that little bit of character without having a single word of it being spoken is just kind of like, you know what, I appreciate the fact that not only do you help the family, but you are a legitimate character in your own right. And I'm really, and I, and I really enjoy you, uh, being around here to just amplify whatever the family has going on and the family has a lot going on considering like how mirabelle just feels as a protagonist considering that uh, like the way that she has to live up to her family's expectations not having the same gifts that everybody around her family does and how that relates to them helping the community and like having her find a purpose or a place or just a reason to be around everybody that would essentially go through and how her parents kind of react to this because, like, one of the... I think it was her dad that's the one that uh, married in the family. Like, everybody else, like, surrounding it, like, has a reason to help and a reason to care. But are those goals really something that is, uh, like, an overall net positive, even though it just laces all these expectations and just press, pressures and stress on top of just this small fam... Well, I say small family. It's, <laughs> it's a pretty big family, like, in comparison, considering, like, how many kids they have. But, um... Yeah, no, it's just, like, everything related to it, like, the way, like, it is a musical, to be sure, and, like, We Don't Talk About Bruno is definitely something that's going to be sticking in my head for, like, the longest time, and I would say that was probably the one that I, like, enjoyed listening to the most. Everything else is, like, all the other ones were a hit and miss. I'm not really that much of a musical kind of guy, so it wasn't something that I could appreciate as much as anybody, uh, like, related to that style of, like, filmmaking and musicals would be able to at least, like, give that kind of perspective on. But, yeah, no, it just seems like, I don't know, because it was incredibly funny. <laughs> I will admit. It was, like, a lot of the jokes were going through, even the time when they don't even have to say a word and the tension and the pressure of the, uh, like, scene and the situation that goes through. I'm just kind of like, okay, I am really enjoying everything that this show has to offer and everything that's related to this family. Like, even the, and by the time that we actually get involved and we know, like, about the strife and struggle between all these characters, then it actually, like, tries to explore the dynamic and, like, really, like, bring us into it and, tr and it gets you emotional, like, easily. 
Like, there were moments with Bruno, there were moments with Mirabelle, like, everything related to that was just struck so well and did such a good way in spreading its message about, like, legitimate message about trust and, like, toxic relationships and how the right people, the specific people, have to fix them. And there is nobody that can start except for them. And I really did, did enjoy what this movie was able to offer and how it was able to go through and speak its message so profoundly and so directly and in a way that's completely universally understandable. So, like, definitely thanks to Shafe Realist Productions, who was able to go through and, like, watch all five of these films and, like, well, actually, no, four of them, actually, to give me, like, decent recommendations. The last one that he ended up watching that I only ended up, like, finally getting off uh, of my list would have been The Mitchells vs. The Machines. And this is also one where I can definitely go through and say I had a blast watching this, the comedy, the just just the style and the writing and how like quick the transitions are, how the like how it's edited to essentially go through and relate to like Abby's state of mind and how like she would go through because she is a filmmaker and how she's able to like bring everything like into her state of mind to kind of like help them go through, even though like everybody else related to her family is like still like fantastic in their own right, considering that like, the dad who's, who's like, wow, Danny McBride as a legitimately good, <laughs> like, uh, father figure and, like, parental figure for us to follow. And it's like, it was kind of interesting to go through, but he does a really good job. I think the mother, Maya, ends up, like, finally finding her footing at the end of the day, like, closer to the end of the film. And then Mike, who is Abby's younger brother, like, he does a really good job at being, like, this really awkward, like, preteen, like, boy who's just trying to deal with the apocalypse, like, in his own way. And it's incredibly, like, interesting to kind of, like, go through. Oh, Eric Andre was the, uh, scientist. Oh, like, I was trying to figure out who that was. But, yeah, no, I was in, it was like, I do remember this guy who's the head of, uh, PAL Labs. And it's just, you know what? He was a really, he was a really good pick. Whenever he was on screen, like, he did a really good job in, like, selling the comedy even throughout, uh, the way that he accidentally leads this into the world's robotic apocalypse. And it's just kind of like, yeah, no, the way, the way that they set this up and like how the comedy hits so well and considering like what the family goes through, uh, consistently and how their road trip kind of like leads them on this specific path to be one of the only potential families that could save the world is incredibly far-fetched but still enjoyable because everything related to this imperfect family is like something incredible to watch because they're always a joy to be around and they're always somebody that like you really love to just like hang out with for a bit and I just really enjoyed how they're able to go through and not necessarily make it seem realistic considering like how out of or out of the ordinary this film is but the way that they use all this like 2000s and early 2010s like referential like meme humor the majority of the time it lands like there are some that don't necessarily go through and are a little bit cringe but the vast majority of the jokes inside of this film just land so perfectly in all the scenarios and all of the conflicts that they go through i don't know they drive me up the wall in the most positive way considering how hilarious they make out any scenario to go like if we're going like a laugh by minute basis this is just I was so consistently invested and, like, in my seat, legitimately enjoying anything that was, like, going on inside of this movie. I could not recommend this enough. And considering that this... Dude, this was Sony Pictures Animation. They gone... Sony Pictures Animation, back to back to back, is going to go Spider-Verse, Mitchell's vs. the Machines, Spider-Verse Part 2. 
are like they are they not one of the best animation houses in the world right now? It is actually insane. I don't know, man. Spider Verse Part Two. It's going to be coming out in October, and I am so excited. You have no idea. <sighs> now, I would like to at least, unfortunately, end it off in a more somber note, considering that, particularly for this film, I probably would never have watched it if it wasn't nominated for like the Academy Award. And it was definitely, and it's definitely one of those things where it's just, that is one of the only good things about the Academy Awards is that for films like these, no matter where they come from, they still have an opportunity to reach an international audience in a way that not many others could. And so this is Flea. It's definitely just a weird catch in this sense, considering that I don't, this, this is a documentary and 90% of it is animated, and the other 10% is live action, but not in ways that you would expect. Like, this is, like, it's not Flash, but it is simplistic for the majority of the time that they're going to go through to tell the story, and when they actually want to go through and, like, jump and actually, like, properly, like, animate this consistently, they definitely go through and, like, do a good job in like, selling the particular moments that happen in this story with such vitriol and suspense and pain in this. So Flea is animated, but at its heart, it's a documentary. And this is a documentary or a animated film where I can't imagine it being as engaging as it could be if it weren't, uh, if it weren't animated. You could technically, if if they basically took the documentary and the recording of the specific characters inside of this, which I can't even call characters. These are real people uh, whose names had to be changed, whose areas of birth had to be, you know, altered, considering that we can't necessarily bring this back to anybody because of the circumstances of their lives and what brought them to this point, uh, considering that this is a Danish film that was directed by a man named uh, Jonas Pohr Rasmussen, and basically it's the telling of a man who was originally from Afghanistan and was born in the 70s to then flee the country because of the occupation that was about to take place in the 70s to then be forced to become refugees inside of Russia to then try and find their way to their older brother who had already successfully escaped years before who lived in Denmark. So the uh, characters, which we'll basically call them characters considering um, at least for their caricatures of their names so they can't necessarily be traced, would be Amin, who slowly over the course of a year slowly breaks out of his shell and his trauma and basically unwinding all of these things that he has never told anybody as to how he was able to escape Afghanistan and make his way over to Denmark and eventually like come out with his homosexuality and considering that he's on the verge of marrying his husband the story jumps back and forth between who he was as a child, what happened around him, the trials and tribulations that he had to go through in order to find the life that he's in right now. Because sure, it shows us that at the end of the day, he's alive, he's already 
um, like in the process of marrying his husband. So he's already gone through and arrived at one of the best, possibly the best outcome of his life. But the journey for him to have even gone to that point is so horrifically painful and stressful and to a degree that he had to unwind and unpackage all of these stories and traumas about his life to the point that he had to just fool himself into telling everybody else that specific parts of these stories happened in order to protect not only himself but his family. Because he was in, he was a family of seven, technically, because it was three brothers, two sisters, and a mother and a grandmother, and, well, a, so mother, grandmother, and father. And so his father was taken away, his mother was also, to a point, like, moved to the rest of it, and because they were able to find a way out, it was going to be, um, they were able to f find out a way, so it was him, his mother, his two sisters and his brother, um, his his middle brother. He was the youngest at the time of the of the group. They basically have to find a way to not only escape Afghanistan but to find their own way through any means necessary to get to Denmark, uh, which is where their older brother was. So at least at that point in time, once they finally got there, they would have they would finally have freedom because everything else related to his story and what he had to go through in order to get to this point in his life, like, it's it's incredibly difficult to at least describe and, and to experience. Because this is, like, in a... If this was just a regular animated story of the trials and tribulations of somebody related to a country or related to that, then it could be something a lot easier to put off. But then when you realize that this is a documentary of a legitimate refugee going through the trials around Afghanistan in the 70s and the 80s, especially with the fall of communism inside of Russia around that time as well, and for him to, at some point after all of this was over, finally come out of it on the other side, you're not only curious as to how he was able to do it, but you were, but it's also why the world was in such a turmoil, especially around those places near Europe and um, and Russia. And it's definitely one of those films where I said at the beginning, I don't think this story could have been told in any other way besides the medium of animation. You could try and make a live action one and just have it be so derogatory of all of these different nations and all of these different uh, stories and pasts and times that these people went through legitimately went through but there would be something that would have to be taken away whether it would be you couldn't film you couldn't get a large film company to legitimately back you because they want to protect their interests and they don't want to anger specific countries with specific demographics in the sense that they would never want to do business with them again because they want to keep that past buried they want to keep those blemishes on the history of their countries just dug so far underground so that they wouldn't have to, it would never come back to bite them in the end. And so the fact that this film was animated would have been the only way to not only protect the character, not the characters, I need to stop saying that word, to not only protect the people, but to protect everybody revolving around this production 
so much so in a way that it was small enough to not be consistently brought into the limelight, but then have enough people support it that it could actually be told unabashedly and without pulling any punches in order to get this out into the world and to actually tell people how parts of this world truly were and how they acted and from a first-person perspective how all of this was unfolding and how essentially all of this came to be. So at least for the man who stands as a mean, I'm definitely happy for both him and his husband and everything that he was, and just, I don't know. It's really something that is so, like, hollow to say that i definitely sorry for all of that to have happened to him considering how meaningless those words are, but that's essentially all I can do. And it's definitely not a film that you would want to watch again. In fact, it's not a film that I would want you to prioritize or focus on considering its content, but it's definitely something that needs to be seen. And it's definitely something that I wouldn't be surprised if it ended up getting the win, but yeah, it's an experience that needs to be seen. So at least at the end of the day, if Flea or Mitchells or Encanto, if any of those three won, I would totally be understanding of how that would essentially go. But yeah, I would say besides Raya and besides Belle, I would still recommend if anybody's looking for something to watch, then essentially to go through. I'm going to try, and now that I've actually got this episode out, I don't have to worry too much about it. I'm going to figure out what essentially to do over the next two weeks, but at least I've got a couple of ideas down the pipeline, so I'm not going to be as uh, muddled up and mixed to force myself to choose between a couple, because at least now everything's, you know, pretty lined up for the next uh, month or so. So I'm hoping you'll be able to at least look forward to those, and as always, have a good one. 